You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. I will unmute myself. You'll also find each week I'm trying to put something on the back that maybe you take away and, and read at a different time that kind of expands some of the, uh, the teaching in a different kind of direction uh, and takes us a bit deeper. So a few things to think about as we go. If you were with us last week, you would have uh, heard us read and uh, spend time unpacking uh, the second half of Romans 1. If you weren't with us, can I encourage you to at least spend some time reading that uh, in the coming week. But if you're familiar with Romans chapter 1, it lists at the end, it really describes the kind of morass of sin that humankind has found itself immersed in, that God has handed us over into. And I just want to imagine that uh, in response to Paul's teaching from Romans 1, uh, he received a letter. Dear Paul, it goes, I've just read the second half of Romans chapter 1. I congratulate you on a vigorous, refreshing expose of evil. I agree with you that it's disgusting when people not only behave badly, but actually approve of bad behaviour. It did be good to read your chapter. You'll be glad to know that I, for one, do not for a moment approve of those who practice these terrible things. On the contrary, I recognise them for the evils they are and agree that such people are without excuse. I look forward to chapter 2. Yours sincerely. Maybe as you listened to chapter 1, maybe you wouldn't write that letter to Paul, uh, but maybe you were thinking, actually, that's not me. Or, you know, I know lots of people who aren't Christian and, and that's not them either. But Romans chapter 2 speaks to you. In light of what we've seen in Romans chapter 1 and that reflection, that reaction... Paul anticipates it and speaks to us because we are very used to building ourselves up in relationship 
with one another by comparison. Now, can I tell you, uh, they've actually shown that people attend, they tend to be more content earning $70,000 a year in an area where everyone else earns $60,000 a year than earning $80,000 a year in an area where everyone else earns $90,000 a year. You see what's happening? Actually, their experience of contentment, it comes from comparison. And we do the same. We build our self-identity, our self-understanding, our this is who we are in comparison to other people. And you can imagine someone looking, maybe us, looking at Romans chapter 1 and saying, I'm better than them. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I don't do those things. I'm not like them. Maybe you look at people like Romans 1 talks about and think, you know, actually I can understand that Christianity would be quite good for them. They need that Jesus stuff. But you know what? I don't need it. I've had a, a member of my family tell me, a good person, a right per- a moral person, tell me, actually, I don't need Jesus. We build our self-understanding on comparison. And maybe as we read through Romans 1, we thought, that's not me. We're better than that. And so Romans 2 is specifically for us. Just to give you a little bit of background, we've been working through Romans. The Apostle Paul wrote Romans around the middle 50s. So the Christian message has been going out for about 20, 25 years at this moment. Uh, and Paul is writing to the church in Rome, a church that he's actually never been to. A church that have heard of him and he's heard of, obviously. And he's writing to them really for two reasons. The first is Paul wants to do a mission trip to Spain. We think he wrote it from near Corinth and he's trying to get them on board uh, to support him as he goes to Spain. And so you'll find that that comes out in the letter. The other thing is that he's learnt just from people talking to him about it that there's a bit of friction between the Jewish part of the church and the non-Jewish or the Gentile part. And they're going, they're going at each other. And so what he does to do both of these things is he explains in great detail the gospel, the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he draws implications out of it. And he will do that as we go through. And at the moment, what he's doing is he's explaining the need, the desperate need that we have for the gospel. And so last week, I very creatively entitled the sermon, The Problem Part One. This week, you can see The Problem Part Two. And next week, anyone? Problem Part Three. Yes, very good. Very good. Top of the class. Last week, he dealt with the broader culture that is out there, uh, the masses, if you want to call it like that. And next week, he focuses in on the Jewish aspect of this question. But this time, he's actually focusing in on people who look at Romans 1 and say, 
That's not me. Let me read to you from Romans 2. He says, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Now you might notice that Paul's actually changed his address, hasn't he? He was talking about them, those people over there. And now he's starting to talk about you. So it looks like he's actually speaking to someone. Now, this was a common way of teaching in Paul's time. You anticipate an objection and you give it a person. And so we're going to call our objector at this point. We're going to call him Bob. Okay, Bob the objector. And Bob is an imaginary person. He's Paul and Paul's imaginary opponents. But he's voicing ideas and Paul is responding to Bob and allowing the Roman church to actually overhear. And Bob, I don't think, is a Jew. I think Bob is a person like the Roman philosopher Seneca. See, Seneca is described like this. He said, not only did Seneca exalt the great moral virtues... He exposed hypocrisy. He preached the equality of all human beings. He acknowledged the pervasive character of evil. He practiced and inculcated daily self-examination. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry and assumed the role of a moral guide. The Roman philosopher Seneca was around at the time that Paul wrote to the Romans. He was actually a counsellor and a tutor for the Roman emperor Nero. And Seneca would have looked at Paul's description and go, I totally agree with you, Paul. They need something, but I don't. And we find in our culture, there are lots and lots of good people. We can fall into the trap and actually looking and seeing, you know, that girl with a life totally messed up. That guy is doing drugs. That, that other person, you know, their, their life is chaotic. They need Jesus. But you know what? That lovely couple next door, they've got no interest in Jesus, but, you know, they've got stuff together. We can, we can have a category that says, you know, the first, they desperately need something, but the second, they're actually doing okay without Jesus. And here we have Bob, our hypothetical objector. He's saying, I'm a nice moral person. I agree with you, Paul. Those people are horrible. That you're right to condemn them. And Paul turns on them and he said, the thing that you condemn them for, you yourself do. Now you've got to ask yourself, really, I imagine this morning, if you're sitting here and you're saying, actually, I I am that good person, and you looked at the list in Romans 1, you'd probably go, no, no, I don't don't go to orgies. I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't get drunk. I'm moral and upright. But you've got to have a more nuanced, a more subtle view of sin. You can have a view of sin that's kind of uh, a very black and white view of sin. 
There's a whole lot of rules. And if you keep them, you're not sinning. That can be one view of sin. Yeah? But that wasn't Jesus' view on things. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, there's a ten, one of the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not, do not kill people. Okay? Jesus says if you hate, it's the same as murdering someone. Do not commit adultery is another one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says if you lust, you're committing adultery. That actually what's happening in your heart, it doesn't actually have to come out in your actions for it to actually be something that is not what God would want. We've got to have a more nuanced view of sin. And when you go through the list in chapter 1, you can see things like arrogance, boasting, insolence. I love this one. Disobedience to their parents. It's funny, we do laugh, don't we? But this is the word of God. I've got a vested interest in making this happen. No. But God sets up structures within society for the good of society. And families are actually one of them. So I don't think we need to join in with our cultures throwing the obedience to parents into the bin. As you look at this and as you understand sin as Jesus presents sin, as Paul presents sin throughout his letters, when we see it's not just rules, did I keep them, did I not keep them? When we see that sin is first and foremost a matter of the heart, if we are honest, maybe we haven't killed someone. But who here has not hated someone? Maybe you haven't committed adultery. But who here has never lusted? And James tells us that if we keep the whole law and stumble at just one point, you are guilty of breaking all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery or Jesus who said don't lust also said you shall not commit murder, don't hate. If you don't commit adultery but do commit murder if you don't lust but you do hate you've become a lawbreaker and thus guilty of the very thing that you condemn others of the danger here is that we we look at this and go this actually isn't me and we can live in denial we can set up different standards we can work out that some sins are more serious than others and the sins that we commit They're the not very serious sins. And the sins that everyone else commits, they're the serious ones. And so, actually, the things I do are excusable. But the things you do, particularly if you do them to me, are inexcusable. I can remember uh, the justifications that used to... As I take myself back to my teenage years, as as a Christian in my early years, I was still learning what it meant to live as a Christian... And the way we used to justify doing something that actually we kind of knew was wrong. But we'd work our way around saying, actually, it's not really that wrong. It's actually okay. In, in, in our days, pirating music was the big thing. It's probably the same for you guys. Music, CDs, DVDs, computer games, whatever it is. There's all sorts of reasons why that's not a big issue. 
But I can remember when it finally came home to me that there's no difference between that and robbing a bank in Jesus' eyes. Both are theft and both are wrong. We live with different standards. We adjust our standards to allow ourselves off the hook and put everyone else back on the hook. Thomas Hobbes, a guy a number of centuries ago, he said, you know, there are people out there who are forced to keep themselves in their own favour. So puffing themselves up by observing the imperfections of other men. I can feel good about myself because I see your flaws. That's what this guy is saying. And you feel good about yourself because you can see my flaws and the flaws of those around us. When we compare ourselves to one another, we can build ourselves up. But Paul here is saying, one another is not, is not the standard. The standard is God and his perfection. But you still might be thinking, I am a good person. Cameron, Paul, Jesus, get off my back. I'm okay. I'm okay. What about all this good stuff that I do? It's kind of like this. Imagine, and for some of you, you won't, this won't be hard. For some of you, you'll just have to imagine. Imagine you're married, okay? You're happily married. And then your spouse, your husband or your wife, leaves you for another. And they are then the perfectly faithful, wonderful spouse to their new lover. They do all the right things for the wrong person. Because they were bound in the covenant of marriage with you. They were meant to be in that relationship with you and they are giving all their perfect obedience and fidelity to another. That illustration helps us actually see, I think, I hope it does anyway, is that we can do all the right things, but it matters who we do them for. And all our good deeds directed not for God, but away to something else, to someone else. It's like being wonderfully faithful to your lover and not to God, the true spouse to which you are pledged. Paul here is saying, you think you are so good, but watch out. There it is, verse 4. He says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. You can imagine Bob at this point has jumped up and says, you know, Paul, you talked about all this judgment falling in chapter one. I don't see that in my life. I don't see that God is demonstrating his wrath against me because my life is together. And Paul here is saying, just because it hasn't fallen yet, has everything to do with God's patience, his forbearance, and his kindness, not your goodness. 
Paul here is saying it's not going to last. He's giving you space so that you can repent, so that you can turn from sin and turn to God. But that time will run out. Peter says it like this. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There is a day where God will judge sin. Finally, climactically, and from that point, there is no chance for those that remain in rebellion. Brothers and sisters, that day will come like a thief. Don't presume that just because it hasn't come now, it's all okay. The day will come like a thief. And your goodness will be exposed. If someone went over your life with a fine tooth comb, if they followed you round, if they could have a window into your head and into your heart and understand your motivations... Do you think you could stand? Even your good deeds, understanding the sometimes ambiguous motivations that go on behind the scenes. I want to do the right thing, but then I want to be seen to be doing the right thing. So is it the right thing that I've done as my motive? How do we do this? But this day is a day where every secret will be laid bare. Every heart will be weighed and your good deeds will be seen for the ambiguity that they actually are. It's kind of like my lawn. I've recently discovered that if you water lawns, they tend to grow, uh, which is quite amazing because our back lawn is now green rather than brown. Uh, And if you look at it, it kind of looks like this, particularly when I've just mowed it. Uh, I find that if you look after the weeds they look better than if you let them just ramble everywhere. But if I go out to my lawn with the judgment that is weed and feed, uh, it will be seen for what it is. Yes? And so my lovely green manicured blend of weed and lawn will develop nice brown patches in it as the weeds are exposed. God's judgment will be like that. It will expose what is actually there. And regardless of how much I pretend that it's all okay, his judgment will be unforgiving. Now, this presuming upon God's grace is not just a thing that people who aren't Christians do. And I say it's probably something that Christians do very, very well. Particularly if two groups of Christians, Christians who've been Christians for a while and Christians who have grown up as Christians. We can tend to just rest back. We know the answers. We know the reasons. And we can tend to just go into automatic mode. We can presume upon God's grace. We can treat God with contempt and can I encourage you, if Romans, 1, Romans 2 teaches you anything, don't do that. 
Don't do that. Because he tells us that judgment is coming. He says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, verse 5, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing, uh, doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, who are rejecting the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Saying one standard for everyone. It's not different sets of rules. Doesn't matter which tribe you belong to. God will judge. He will judge with absolute righteousness. 2 verse 5. God's righteous judgment revealed. In 2.16 it tells us that the secrets of the heart will be disclosed, will be laid bare. No one will get off on technicalities. We will be judged perfectly according to what we do. Revelation 20 gives us a picture of this. John writes, he says, I I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you've got two lots of books. The dead were judged according to what they had done, recorded in the books. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into a lake of fire. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 tells us that we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done while in the flesh. If you want to look at the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17 verse 10, Hosea 12 verse 2, you will see again and again and again that we will give an account. And as Paul speaks to Bob, to Seneca, to us, do we honestly think that if we, if all our secrets were exposed, all our motives were seen clearly, everything that happens behind the facade of our good life, if it was exposed, would God give you the thumbs up? I don't think so. Paul does say that God is perfectly just. And so if there is such a person who seeks good persistently, and when he says persistently, he's not like every second day. He's like every second, every moment. Their life is oriented around this and they do this. He will give glory, honor, peace, eternal life. But verses 8 and 9 tell us that those who are self-seeking, those who disobey the truth and follow evil, there is wrath, anger, tribulation and distress. Paul here is speaking to Bob. He's speaking to us. When we hear those two categories, do we dare say, I'm in the first? No, his whole power of his argument is to get us to see 
that no matter how good we think we are, no matter how many good deeds that we think we have that stack up, we do not, by persistence, seek the good. We break the law, even if it's just in one place, and so become a lawbreaker. But it's not just one place, is it? Brothers and sisters, we will be judged by our works. And if we are saved, it will be by grace. Those of us who are Christians, we know this. That is not our work, but the perfect work of the Lord Jesus. It is what he did that makes the difference. And for us, we receive that by faith. It is God's gracious gift, freely offered. Not that our works don't matter, but our works in no way contribute to our salvation. As Christians, we can't say, I'm saved by grace, I'm saved by Jesus, I'm going to do whatever. It doesn't matter what I do, because God forgives me, that's his business. That's like saying, my wife, my husband loves me so much, I am so secure in my relationship with them, I'm going to go have an affair. Actually, I'm going to have many affairs. I'm going to be unfaithful. Could you imagine saying that? Could you imagine fronting up to your spouse and saying, I'm so secure in the love that you have for me. Can I introduce you to my lovers? As if you do it. But why do we think we can do it to God? Why do we think that he doesn't care? Brothers and sisters, our works matter. Not as the grounds of our salvation, but the evidence of the salvation. Like a lemon tree. The lemons are just the evidence that this is a lemon tree. They are not the tree. They are not its life in itself. They are the product of that life. Our works are the evidence that our faith is living and active. They aren't the grounds for our salvation. The grounds for our salvation is the perfect work of Christ. But what we do matters. Martin Luther said it like this. He said, faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. It doesn't go to sleep. It's not lazy. We are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. If your lemon tree has no lemons, it's a sick tree. If your faith has no works, it is a sick faith. And if that is persistent, is it a real faith at all? Brothers and sisters, it's a hard word. It's a hard word. What do we do with it? Maybe this morning you're sitting there thinking, maybe before the sermon, hopefully not now. Actually, I'm okay. Look at all this good stuff I do. I'm a good person. Can I say, Paul's diagnosis is like the immoral masses the moral, good, upright person needs Jesus just as desperately as all the others that you might look down on. 
Romans 3 verse 9, Paul says we have made the point that Jew and Gentile, the mass of humanity, alike are under sin. Paul is driving us to see that we need Christ. What's he also saying? He's speaking to us Christians. And he's saying, don't be proud. Don't puff yourself up. Don't look at the Romans 1 people and go, I'm so together. And you guys, God's right to judge you. And he's kind of lucky to have me. Don't puff yourself up. Because the only difference between you and the Romans 1 sinner is the grace of God to you in Christ. Remember the hymn, No merit of my own I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Helpless look to you for grace. We contribute nothing. And so Christian, you have no reason to condemn others. You have no reason to put others down, no reason to puff yourself up and go, I am so good. The gospel gives us a radical humility. It is the ultimate leveler. And no matter what God does in your life, no matter how far you progress in your Christian walk, it is by grace from first to last. And so when you look at the Romans 1 sinner, you see someone who is in just as much need of grace as you yourself are. And so you reach out not with superiority, not with condescension, but with love, with charity, with compassion. Christians are so often in our culture painted as judgmental hypocrites. And can I say there's a certain part of that I don't think we can ever escape because our culture has basically said it to us that unless you agree with us, you are condemning us. And there are things that we as God's people cannot agree with. And so we must stand and cop dishonour for his namesake. But we have no grounds to think that we are any better. Christopher Ash said it like this. He speaks of a church of men and women so humbled under this sober truth that we will properly appreciate the wonder of grace. Does grace amaze us? Or is grace something that we're just so familiar with? Do we look at Romans 2 and see the depths to which God had to come to rescue us? And does that flag for us, does that highlight for us, does that elaborate for us the wonders of grace? Or do we sing songs of praise 
to God for his mercy and grace and our hearts are unmoved. We read it, we celebrate the Lord's Supper and it's just another thing that we do. Brothers and sisters, as we humble ourselves under our desperate need, we will properly appreciate the wonder of grace. We'll live in harmony with one another. That's the Jew-Gentile thing. We'll get more to that in the future. And reach out with humble urgency to a needy world because sinners need, sinners need Christ. And sinners come in all shapes and sizes and some of them are really good, nice, moral people. Hell is full of it. Nice people are in hell. Good people are in hell. Religious people are under God's judgment. If they seek to find their security, their salvation in anything other than the finished work of Christ, the gospel of grace. Only a church of men and women humbled under this sober truth will properly appreciate the wonder of grace and reach out with humble urgency to a needy world because we know that Christ is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, your word, your word humbles us. Your word, like a surgeon's scalpel, cuts us open exposes our heart and our desperate need. But Father, as we see the need, may your spirit also show us the wonder of your answer to our need, the amazing grace that you have poured forth in the gospel, the riches of hope, of peace and life that Christ has won for us through his death and resurrection. Father, I pray this morning for any here who might be tempted to trust in their own performance, their own goodness, their own righteousness, that they would see just how far they fall short, but just how wonderfully your offer of grace meets their need. And Father, I ask that you would help them to see in Christ their only hope. And Father, I pray for all of us for whom Christ is at the centre, that we would never lose him from that place, that his work would always be the foundation, the grace in which we stand, and that our life our life would flow from that grace and bear good fruit to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.